Start your Saturday with local talk and Tim Weisberg. We know how busy you are during the week. So when the weekend comes, talk with Tim about what's on your mind. Tim Weisberg, Saturday morning from 6 to 9 on AM 1420 and WBSM.com. AM 1420, WBSM. Welcome to Saturday Morning with Tim Weisberg. here with you. It, it wasn't 20 years ago today. It was 50 years ago tomorrow that the Beatles hit America on the Ed Sullivan show and our lives were forever changed. By the way, somebody needs to put a FM plug into the computer over here, thrown it into the board so we can get, get both sides of the music there. That's the thing about those uh, new remasters is uh, when you get the stereo sound, sometimes it doesn't come out of both sides of the speakers if you've got a mono plug. Uh, we are going to be joined all this hour by our guest, R. Gary Patterson. He is a rock and roll historian and folklorist, and he has some of the best stories about the Beatles, and he is probably the most knowledgeable Beatle expert I know. Gary, so excited to have you on the program. How are you? Oh, helps if I hit the button. How are you, Gary? Oh, it's great. You must be, uh, this must have been a date that has been circled on your calendar for quite a while. <laughs> Well, since I actually watched the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, I guess I really didn't expect it to be 50 years later. You know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's been it's been circled there. I think the thing that amazes me is how relevant the Beatles still are today in music, and how they have new generations of fans. I don't think you can say that about many artists who are 50 years old. I was saying that uh, with uh, our our newsman uh, Jim Marshall a few minutes ago that you know there's people who are going to watch, there's going to be young kids who watch these retrospectives on the Beatles this weekend and will see that first appearance on the Ed Sullivan show and will fall in love with the Beatles just as everybody did 50 years ago. Yeah, I think that's a very valuable point. I know that when my first book came out, I did a lot of Beatlefest. And uh, if anyone's going to Beatlefest today in, in New York, then tell Mark Lapidus hello for me because they've got a big three-day celebration coming up there. But, you know, I just remember that watching it was just awe-inspiring, you know. And uh, when you're talking about generations, when you're seeing these kids at Beetlefest who are nine years old and they're walking around with Beetle T-shirts and, you know, every lyric to Beetle songs, you know, I think that's pretty amazing. It really hasn't. There, there hasn't been a generation that has not fallen in love with the Beatles. It hasn't skipped any generation since they, they first came on the scene. It seems like uh, no matter what, and I said this earlier this morning, I, I really find very few people that don't like the Beatles. I mean, some people might not be over the moon about them as you and I are, but it's hard to find anybody that says, no, I don't like them at all. I had one caller in the last hour who said that he doesn't like them. I think that might be the only person I've ever heard ever say that. <laughs> the Grinch is still Christmas. Yeah, uh <laughs> I think that if you didn't like the Beatles, I think that you were definitely influenced by the Beatles. And, you know, you talk about recording technology. I mean, I always love it when I hear rock bands, 
you know, who talk about being influenced by the Beatles. And I remember R.E.M. at one time said, oh, you know, we weren't influenced by the Beatles. We were influenced by the birds. And then I was thinking, you know, when Roger McGuinn went out and bought that Rickenbacker 12-string, it was because he watched the Beatles in Hard Day's Night. He decided he had to have that guitar that had that jingle-jangle sound that George Harrison had. And then I was thinking, yeah, Rickenbacker guitars of Alex AC-30, somebody was influenced by the sound. You know, it may not be the name, but they were influenced by the sound. And, you know, the great songwriting and uh, the recording technology. I mean, when you think, if you know anything about actually recording, if you think that Sgt. Pepper was cut on a four-track recorder, Four tracks. Wow. And today, you know, we have digital tracks. You can do hundreds, you know, and not even have a step down. But they did this on four tracks. And the White Album and Abbey Road were cut on eight tracks. You know? I mean, that's phenomenal. They were, they were able well to do things. They, they were able to take the technology of the time and push it uh, past what anybody can even imagine. And, and I think, you know, th- there's a lot of talk over the years about who the, the fifth Beatle was, you know, with Stu Sutcliffe, Pete Best, mm-hmm. what have you. But to me, the fifth Beatle was always George Martin for the way that he was able to uh, be such an integral part of the band's sound. You know, I sort of wonder how it would have been if George Martin had, hadn't been at EMI and at Abbey Road and listened to their demo tape and said, hmm, that guy's a first-class guitar player. And what if Joe Meek had produced the Beatles? I mean, I think your your point's very viable. I think that uh, George Martin's incredible background as a producer and as a musician allowed them to take the ideas and put it down because they would ask him. Like, for instance, uh, I was in London last summer, and I was with a group of people, and we were doing one of the tours, and I've been there many times, but I remember going to Buckingham Palace, and a tour guide who was with us knew that I'd written some stuff on the Beatles, and she came over and she said, I want you to know that my grandfather came home, and he told my grandmother, he said, guess who I'm recording with today? She said, I have no idea. She said, a group called the Beatles, and you know, this was like an late 66, early 67, and neither her grandfather or her grandmother knew who the Beatles were. I thought that was amazing in London. Mm. But her grandfather was the guy who played the piccolo uh, trumpet part on Penny Lane. Wow. Yeah. I thought, no, <laughs> that was cool. And it's a small world, you know, to, to meet somebody like that. But it was cool, you know. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just like I don't know if they'll ever be – another band that will change the world like the Beatles did and lead a social revolution and a recording revolution and write as good as songs. And, I mean, you you put that together and there there's not many bands that will be there with them. We, we've been speculating all morning about some of the reasons why uh, the Beatles might have been such a huge phenomena right out of the gate. Part of it, of course, is they were just immensely, immensely talented people uh, and very congenial. But w- what do you think is the reason why you know Beatlemania took over so quickly? That's a great question. I think that when we're looking at, well, let's see, the Beatles landed in the United States on February 7th. 1964 did the Ed Sullivan Show on February 9th. So let's go back and let's take a look at the red-letter year 1959, okay? 
Now, when Don McLean tells us that 1959 was the, the day the music died, well, he was partially right, because 1959 was really the year the music died. If we take a look at Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper who were killed in the plane crash and took them out of the scene, and we also think that in 1959, Alan Freed, the creator of the phrase rock and roll, was destroyed by the payola scandals. Elvis was in the Army, and when he got out, he goes into the young Dean Martin mode and doing movies instead of Jailhouse Rock. Little Richard in that year gave up rock and roll to be a minister. In that year, Chuck Berry was in prison for violation of the Mann Act. Jerry Lee Lewis had just married his 13-year-old cousin, Myra, and destroyed his career. And all that had just happened. And rock and roll shifted, oh, you know, from the Betty Holly rawness and the, the melodies and the live performancing of musicians who played. And it shifted to Fabian, Tommy Sands, mm. Frankie Avalon, Bobby Rydell, and it was more pop singers. It was like young Dean Martins. And it lost its rawness. It had lost its impact. And when the Beatles performed on the Ed Sullivan Show, they saved rock and roll. The only thing that was holding on were the girl bands. And, you know, you're talking about the Shirelles, the Shangri-Las, and, and, you know, and they were pop also. But, I mean, they had 120 different artists, you know, girl band artists at that time. And, you know, you talk about the Brill Building, and when the Beatles landed, the very first thing they asked them was, who do you want to see? Who do you want to meet first? Because the Beatles were afraid about coming over here. You knew that, right? Yeah, well, because, you know, it's one thing to be the, the big fish in a small pond, but when you come into America, it's a whole different ballgame. <laughs> well, they said, what do they need us for? You know, what does America need us for? I mean, they have Elvis. Mm. You know, they had Little Richard. You know, they have, what do they need us for? And uh, they really didn't know the impact until they stepped off the plane. But, you know, what they were able to do, when they asked them who they wanted to meet, everybody thought it was going to be Bob Dylan. But who they really wanted to meet was Carol King and Jerry Goffin, because they wanted to write songs as good as theirs. And they wanted to be songwriters. And the funny thing about the Beatles and the British invasion is that they took American music and reintroduced it to us with a British accent and a sort of cool fashion sense from London. But when they came over, they had studied their lessons well. They'd listened to the Brill Building. They'd listened to the Girl Bands. They'd listened to Motown. They'd listened to Carl Perkins. They were into the rockabilly thing. And you take the blend that they did and the harmonies with the Almond, with, excuse me, the uh, harmonies with the Everly Brothers, where they would sit in their rooms for hours and practice that harmony with, you know, that Phil and Don made so famous. And when they came over, no wonder we instinctively liked it. Plus, in 1963, just a few months earlier, John Kennedy had been assassinated. This was a country grieving. We needed to have fun. We needed to, to break out of, of that terrible time period. And the Beatles allowed us to do that. And a lot of people probably didn't like them, but if you watched them on the Ed Sullivan Show, and if you haven't seen it, so if you're going to watch them tomorrow night on the 50th anniversary when it took place, notice how their hair doesn't seem as long as it did at the time, and notice how neatly dressed they were. 
And when parents watch those guys perform, you know, they said, yeah, I wouldn't mind if my daughter dated a Beatle. They seemed like nice boys. But when the Rolling Stones came out, you know, you really didn't want your daughter dating one of them because, <laughs> you know, they wouldn't be happy with just wanting to hold her hand, you know. But, right. Uh, the whole idea was it was a, a cultural phenomenon. The, the Beatles just wanted to hold your hand, but the, the Rolling Stones wanted to spend the night together. So yeah, that's it. <laughs> they're exactly. a little bit more overt. Unless they were on the Ed Sullivan show, and then they'd want to spend some time together. Yeah, exactly. Well, why don't we take a break? When we come back on the other side, we'll talk more with our guest, our Gary Patterson. We'll also take your calls as well, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. Back with more Beatles in just a moment here on WBSM. <laughs> Back Tim Weisberg here with you, and we are joined on the phone by R. Gary Patterson. You can check out his website, rgarypatterson.com, and you can also pick up some of his works, which are just phenomenal books. If you don't have them in your collection and you're a rock and roll fan, you must get these books. The Walrus Was Paul, which we'll talk about coming up a little bit later on this hour, and also Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses, which is an updated version of the original uh, Hellhounds on their trail, Tales from the Rock and Roll Graveyard, which Gary was, it was setting, uh, eBay records for pricing <laughs> when, uh, when a few years ago when it was so hard to get copies of it. I, I know. Uh, it's embarrassing. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, that's the great thing about this, though, is it's a topic that's universal. Everybody remembers these songs, they remember these bands, and they have such uh, affinity for them that they want to learn more about the inside information behind the bands. Is it something that you have always been interested in? You know, like if I like a band these days, I go on Wikipedia and I try to learn everything I can about them. Did you do that type of research for the bands that you were into, or is it something that just happened later on in life? Well, actually, there was no Wikipedia. Right, <laughs> you had to go to the before computers. But, you had to go to the old-fashioned you know, way. Yeah, the old one. Yeah. But what happened was that you know when I just wanted to learn everything. I'd buy the albums and I'd read the you know I'd read the jackets. I'd find out who did this, who produced it, who directed it, what how that helped the sound. You know, I was like in junior high when it first came out. But I think when you have an intense love for something. And you're touched with something like that. I think that you know it stays with you. You grow with it, and uh, you just keep adding more and more information. And and you know it, it's 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 interesting to me because I never really would have expected that there would be a time that I would actually know people who were very close to the Beatles. And uh, I never met. Well, the only Beatle I ever met was uh, Pete Best. He wasn't very lucky, but uh, I did meet Pete. Pete, and uh, I know a lot of people who are close to the group, very good friends of theirs, like Bill Harry. And so, you know, I learned lots and lots of more and much more information with the doors and people like that who really affected my musical taste growing up. But 
you know, with the Beatles, it was just it was just amazing. It was just what you wanted to learn and, and delve in. And I wanted to play the guitar. I think everybody wanted to play the guitar after they saw the Beatles on the Insolvent show. So, you know, you wanted to buy the guitars that they used because it had to be the secret to the sound, you know. It couldn't be that they practiced really hard. Right. You got the guitar, you get the sound. But, I mean, I think all that was an influence. Well, also, too, it, it helps, too, when uh, you can play banjo chords on the guitar like John. I mean, that, that makes a difference, too, to get that sound. Yeah, or if you played with five strings, you know, and George and uh, Paul said, you know, you need another string, and let me tune your guitar for you. It'll help. And, you know, you take a look at those American influences when Paul first met John. Uh, he uh, auditioned for the quarryman playing 20-flat rock Betty Cochran. And, uh, you know, but they were all just really... It really influenced greatly by American music. And what you got to remember, and think about this, there was only one other British band that ever made number one before the Beatles, and that was the Tornadoes. And their song was Telstar, the instrumental. Mm -hmm. So when the Beatles came over, no one had ever hit the top of American charts and from Great Britain. So, you know, they were a little apprehensive when they got here, but, you know, they looked at how many number one hits they had and how many great albums, and and they ruled American Airways. And, you know, we were actually caught flat-footed because, you know, we were still going into the old dose of pop, and uh, nobody had an answer for what the Beatles were doing. And if an American band combed their hair down to their eyebrows, then that doesn't mean that American teenagers wanted them because, you know, they wanted bands from Great Britain. And actually, England became cool because England was always a stuffy country back then. But now it was cool, you know. And, uh, you know, you could go over and get the fashion at Carnaby Street, and everybody wanted to go to London. Everybody wanted to be with the Beatles. It was amazing. Well, we only have a few minutes here before we have to take a break for the news. But uh, this British invasion that the Beatles kicked off, was that something that was already kind of brewing and festering? Or was it more that once the Beatles hit, then record companies were saying, okay, now we need the next Beatles, and they, they just went and mined all the bands in the U.K.? Isn't that amazing? I mean, how American uh, record labels work. I mean, if you had a 13-year-old girl who has a number one hit, then every record label has to go out immediately and sign a 13-year-old girl because it worked for another label. I mean, every label in Great Britain turned down the Beatles. Turn them down. It's amazing. Some and that's why they came up with DJ, which is basically, a, you know, a, an American black label. And that's how I got their chance, you know, to get something released. And, I mean, Brian Epstein was just about giving them away just to get them out. And I'm sure there were a lot of people who jumped from very high buildings after the, the Beatles became so famous, you know, and they turned them down. But to answer your question, if you had the right look, then labels would find you. And, you know, in Great Britain, from Liverpool, you know, you had Jerry and the Pacemakers, you had others, but you had the Animals from Manchester, you had the Rolling Stones from London, and you put all that together, and the Kinks from London, and, and uh, well, not, yeah, the Who, I'm sorry, from London. But when you put it all together like that, I mean, you just had a non-ending supply of British music, and what's beautiful about it, it didn't sound the same, did it? No, no, they, um, there was influences, I mean, I, but they, you could tell that they were definitely creating their own sounds. Yeah, you could. And, I mean, if I heard the animals, I never got the animals mixed up with the Beatles or the Rolling Stones mm -hmm. or the Yardbirds or the Kinks, you know, or Jerry and the Pacemakers or <laughs> Herman's Hermits. 
I mean, they all sounded different. They had a whole different style. And, you know, a lot of the bands from Great Britain, they wrote their own songs by the influence of the Beatles. But, you know, some bands still used American songwriters like uh, Barry Mann, Cynthia Wilde, Carole King, Jerry Goffin. And they had great songs, and they just had great production, and they did it. And American bands really found it hard to compete until you got to Los Angeles, and then you had a group called the Birds, who were really the Beatles' favorite band in America. And then I guess you could say, well, Buffalo Springfield was a major impact. The Doors, you know, sort of draw the line there, Mm -hmm. but not anything in 64 unless you call Paul Revere narrators, you know who the keyboard player's actual name was Paul Revere. So it's pretty good. <laughs> I it always seemed like it just fit for them. All right, well, why don't we take a break for the news. When we come back on the other side, we'll talk more with our guest, our Gary Patterson. We'll also take your calls, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. And now to the John Lennon to my Paul McCartney, or the Paul McCartney to my John Lennon, Jim Marshall. I like that. I know that- Joined by our guest, R. Gary Patterson. And you don't have to hide your love away for the Beatles. Definitely not this weekend, of course, when it's the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. They took America by storm on February 9th, 1964. Gary is joining us to discuss that. He is a rock and roll historian. He is an author. He has a few books out, The Walrus with Paul and Hellhounds. I'm sorry, the... The new version of that is <laughs> the Hellhounds on the Trail. Is if you try to find that, you're not going to have any luck. Take a walk on the dark side is uh, is the way that you can check out that book as well. And uh, I do definitely want to get into the Paul is Dead stuff uh, before the end of the hour, Gary. But th- that song that I just played, you've got to hide your love away. It just shows the ability of Lennon and McCartney to to do things differently than other people didn't. And they they could have used the phrase two foot tall, but instead they use the word small because it further implies just how they're feeling. And they, they do a lot of tricks like that with the lyrics. They, they find ways to, to express themselves differently than other bands might have. Yeah, like the movement you need is on your shoulder, you know? <laughs> right, Well, which I think, didn't Paul say he had no idea what that meant when he wrote it? Yeah, he just put it there, you know, and John said, no, don't change it. That's the best line in the whole song. So, yeah, I mean, it's, and of course, you know, you know, Lennon enjoyed wordplay like that, you know, because of his influences with Lewis Carroll and James Joyce and everything else. So he had, he had a lot of fun with the wordplay. Those guys were pretty bright young fellas, too, you know, when they came out, you know, they, they may not have done well on their exams like John had failed his, uh, college or his his school exams nine times i think but but you know he was he was very bright i think school just didn't appeal to him at the time you know he was he was a rebel with the cause and one of the things too about the the words that they use and the wordplay that they use is 
it, it took them to a different level. It took them beyond just being a pop band, and it made them more of a, a literary band. When you look at their lyrics as you know, printed word on the page, it reads no mm-hmm. different than the, the poetry that would have come out of England. Uh, you know, in, in the uh, 1800s, they just would have fit right in with that whole era. Well, they would, and I think that you know Dylan had a lot of influence with that, with with his poetry. And you've got to hide your love away was uh, John Lennon and his Bob Dylan mode, you know, uh, trying to write a song like Dylan. So you know they they took up the challenge. I mean their their influences uh, led them to experiment and come up with song ideas like like they did. And what they did, they put it out. I mean, if you want to listen to wordplay, listen to I Am the Walrus, mm-hmm. you know. You know what? What great lines! And I know when Yes came out with Roundabout, you know everybody kept talking about what did those lyrics mean? And they just chose the lyrics because they sounded good. <laughs> it didn't have to mean anything. It was just the play of the word. So the Beatles started that. Right. Sometimes point. music's just a feeling, and you know the words that go along with that feeling don't have to make sense because the feeling's not going to make sense. So why why do the words have to? But exactly. Exactly. You're right. Though we do put too much emphasis uh, on a lot of it, and and one of the things that we put an emphasis on when it comes to lyrics is the idea of this whole Paul is dead thing. And I, I do want to get into that. If anybody wants to hear the whole program that we did on that a few years ago, you can go to SpookySouthCoast.com, check out the archives, search for our Gary Patterson's name, or find it on iTunes, and you can hear the entire program. We do have a few calls though, Gary, for you if you don't mind taking them. Oh, great! Yeah, I love it. All right, let's do that. Let it be, as as the Beatles would say. Well, here we go. Good morning. You're on WBSM with Gary Patterson. Do you have a question for him? Good morning. Hi, how are you? I am well, thank you. Yes, please. I would like Mr. Patterson to suggest what I might do with a significant amount of Beetle memorabilia. That was my wife's Beetle collection. It consists of scrapbooks and magazines and cutout articles and some store-bought things. And I've had them in storage for many years. They're not exactly perfect, but I would just like to know if he might have a suggestion as to how I can make them of value to myself or someone else. Well, I think that's a good question because those of us who grew up with the Beatles, we bought so many things with the Beatle images and uh, so many records. And a lot of this is very rare, and and it's worth a, a great deal of money. One place that you may consider going and uh you know i mean i shouldn't really make this a plug but i, I called it beetle fest a few minutes ago it should be the beast uh the, the fest for beetle fans in new york at the uh i think it's at the hyatt this weekend but they have a lot of dealers who come in and they have a lot of memorabilia and what you can do is you can have your memorabilia with you and you can go get an estimate on how much it would cost you know if, if you wanted to sell it one of the main problems is if you have a huge, huge collection, what they may do is try to break it up, which you may not want to do. Um, there are sources, uh, some some Beatles sources. I know that Charles Rosenay, uh is big as far as being able to get prices and give you an, an idea of how much it would go. And there's a lot of books that are printed to tell you how much. I mean, like if you had a Butcher album cover, you know, for instance, uh, I think they, they've gone up in price. I've had one for many, many years. But, you know, it seems to be a collectible. And, of course, one of the main things is exactly who wants to pay what for it. I mean, that's what your value is usually set on. But some of it's very rare if you had, like, the VJ collection of uh, 
the 45 that had, I think, four singles on it, you know, that's valuable. But you got to have the, the dust cover and everything with it, you know. But, you know, those are some good things. And, and you know, you kept it for 50 years. You don't want to give it away. and You don't want to lose it. And, you know, sometimes it's a good idea to pass it down and let your kids enjoy it, too. So, you know, you've got a big decision on your hands, don't you? I really do. And my wife has passed, and I keep moving it. And it's uh, I just want to do the right thing with it. But I would like to know what value it has. And then I can make that decision as to whether to pass it down or liquidate it. Uh, do you have any web? Do you have a website or a contact number or a suggested one that I might use to begin? Well, you can use my website is rgarypatterson.com. You can find out stuff about me there. Uh, basically, I would do a search on Amazon for uh, rock collectibles. I'm sorry, what is that again? Find a book on, on Amazon.com. Give you a price range. What's it called, please? Oh, Am- I'm sorry. My my website is r gary patterson.com got that and dot com mm-hmm. and you just and the third one you use if you'd repeat oh, again the, please i'm sorry go to amazon.com and do a search for books on rock memorabilia okay because uh and also another thing i don't know if you have albums or collectibles but i have certain all things the in, albums oh you do have the albums including the covers Okay. Well, see, that's what's good. If you have a yesterday and today, you might want to look and see if you can see uh, if you have a butcher cover. If you do, don't peel it. It's worth a lot more if it's not peeled. But there's an Austin Records. Let's see. Yeah, in Austin, Texas, there's a record show there once a once or twice a year where you can bring your albums and uh, you can trade or sell or, you, or at least find out what it's worth. So that should be able to help you. Perfect. Thank you very much, Thank you for the call. I won't hold you up, and I will. You're very welcome. Thank you. You bet. Bye. Have a good day. And, uh, Gary, I I was wondering, you mentioned the the Beatles fan convention. Uh, I was wondering if you had any plans on attending the Monkees convention that's coming up March 14th, 15th, and 16th in in New Jersey. Well... Is that the one with Charles Rosemary? Is he the is he the person in charge of that one? Uh, as far as I know, it's a it's a woman named Jody and her partner uh, Phyllis, I believe her name is, and uh, oh, okay. they're, they're going to have D. I'm um, sorry, they're going to have uh, Mickey Dolans and uh, and Mike Nesmith there, and, and Nez is actually going to perform. That's going to be rare. That'd be something worth seeing. Uh, when is it again? Which month? It's uh, it's in March. It's happening March fourteenth, oh, fifteenth, and sixteenth. Well, let me see if I can mark it on my calendar and see if I can make my way up there. Well, I'll make some introductions to you, between you and Jody, and maybe we can uh, get you booked as part of the uh, convention. Oh, that's cool. Let's that's see, great. Let's see if we can make it happen. Now, let's take a real quick call here, and then we'll have to take a break. Good morning. You're on WBSM with our Gary Patterson. How are you? Hello? Hello? Hi, you're on the air. Oh, I am. I didn't hear the... <laughs> <laughs> Gary, nice to hear from you, man. Oh, it's nice to nice to talk to you. Hey, what can uh, I do for you? I wish I could talk to you a little bit longer. Um, your favorite—I was fascinated by the Beatles. My mother had a forty-five. We used to play on the old phonograph there years ago. I guess they didn't even make phonographs anymore. But um, the White Album. And Tim, mm-hmm. I want to ask you, what's your favorite Beatles blues song? Because I, I I went on YouTube and I'm looking at there's over I don't know how many songs the Beatles wrote. But John Lennon was. I'm looking at your blues. Mm, that's yeah. a good song. One. Looking at the video on YouTube and actually smoking weed in the video, and uh, I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. 
And the white, my, my question to you, Gary, is the, the white album. Um, what is your impression on that? And Hello? That, you know, the, the old Help the Skelter thing, it, Charles Manson heard the album and it made him want to do the, all, all these things he did, and, and I'll let you go from there. <laughs> did, did you hear the question, Gary? Hi, Gary. You still there? I think we may have lost him. Wow. I, I heard him say hello and then drop off. So uh, Yeah, that's, that's all I heard, too. Well, we'll take a break and I'll hello? see you. Oh, there he is. Gary, you oh, with us? I, I, I think we've lost him. I'm going to I'm gonna take a break and I'll call him back and I'll ask him that question uh, when we come back. Thank you. All right, thank you. All right, Gary, yeah. you still with us? Can you hear us now? All right, well, we'll take a break when we come back on the other side. More with our Gary Patterson as we talk about the Beatles here on WBSM. Welcome back. Tim Weisberg here with you with our guest, R. Gary Patterson. You can check out his website, rgarypatterson.com. He is the man who knows all there is to know about pop culture, about music, about music folklore and mythology. And you can check out his uh, Pop Odyssey radio website as well. And check that out. Uh, and, Gary, the question before uh, we lost you there before the break was about the White Album and what you thought about that and its influence on Charles Manson. Well, if you've read uh, Vincent Bugliosi's book, Helder Skelter, he goes into a great deal of how Charles Manson thought the Beatles were speaking to him, and that especially on Revolution 9 was supposed to be the reference to Revelation 9 in the Bible about four angels rising from the bottomless pit, waiting for the fifth angel, Apollyon, to, to meet with them to start the Helter Skelter, or the racial apocalyptic war. And Manson felt that, you know, he was this person they were waiting for. And a week before the Tate murders, uh, Manson's followers had tried to call the Beatle offices in London. And, of course, they didn't take their call. But, you know, just the idea that he had heard in Honey Pie that where it talks about sell across the Atlantic and fill me with the magic of your Hollywood song. You know, Manson and his family lived on the outskirts of Hollywood. So, you know, obviously it was a message to him. So, you know, the idea that they were trying to start this apocalypse and writing messages and Beatle lyrics and the victim's blood, you know, it was something the Beatles really didn't want to come to California for and to find out their music had had any influence, if it oh, was yeah. backward tracks or whatever on a human psyche that would create something like the terrors of the Manson murders. You know, they just wanted to stay away from it. It wasn't very much fun for that in 1969, which was just coincidentally about the same time the Paul is Dead rumors started. So, you know, it wasn't all that great of publicity. And, of course, the Beatles at that time, they were breaking up, and it was the sue-me-sue-you stage about to start. So, you know, it got to be very quiet. But that's one of the great, great legends in rock history about the White Album. Well, we are going to talk later on tonight. I'm going to uh, rebroadcast our, our original interview with you when we talked about uh, the Paul is Dead controversy and, and the clues uh, from your book, The Walrus Was Paul. Uh, I will rebroadcast that on tonight's Spooky South Coast following our discussion uh, with our scheduled guest for tonight. So if you have not heard that interview and you want to hear it, we'll play it later on tonight in its entirety. Uh, but real quickly, I mean, uh, people can tune in later on to hear all the nuts and bolts, but 
this was all in fun, right? If if there was a, a concentrated effort, which it appears to be from your book, to put this hoax out there, it was just for laughs. Was it? Oh, I'm sorry. No. Um, what I, I'm, I was just teasing. But, you know, basically, if it's something that's a joke, every now and then you got to tell the joke, you know, you got to tell the punchline. Right. I think that basically there was uh, – you know, we talk about the clues being as if guided looking, guided listening, uh, totally ridiculous. And then something the Beatles had to plan. I mean, I think the Beatles actually planted a few clues. And by the concept of them actually planning something, then they had to have an, an outcome they were waiting for. So let me give you this to think about after you play it tonight. In 1967, when Sgt. Peppers came out, which is really the album cover that you find the most incredible clues, why would it come out on Sgt. Peppers? And think about this. When the Beatles music changed, you had Rubber Soul, and then you had Revolver, where you know it became much more psychedelic. And then all at once, Sgt. Peppers came out, and it was a complete change because the Beatles were evolving so fast. What if the Beatles found that people didn't like Sgt. Peppers? What if they wanted them to go back and not make those dramatic changes? I mean, the Beatles were not playing live anywhere. There's no way they could have played the music live anyway from Sgt. Peppers at that time. Right. So let's say if the album flopped, unthinkable to think that. But what if it did? And what if the Beatles had put a few little clues on there they could sort of allude to later on so people would go out and buy the album and look for the clues? I mean, there has to be a reason. Because when the Paul the Dead Rumors came out, all those albums jumped back on you know, the charts. So they made tons of money. And, you know, Russ Gibb actually helped them make that, make that money when, uh, you know, he started the, the phenomena with it. So, you know, maybe that had something to do with it. I mean, I've thought about it constantly with the idea of why the Beatles would do it. I mean, I don't think Paul's dead because what would have been the odds that the Beatles could have found an individual more talented than the original Paul McCartney <laughs> right, yeah. who looked just like him and wrote even better songs? You know, think about the songs. The whole second side of Abbey Road was a pretty good collection of songs by this imposter, huh? Absolutely. Just the, just the idea, you know, that there may have been a backup plan. Maybe that was it. Not not bad for a Toronto policeman, huh? Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> All right. I think we have time maybe to squeeze in one last call here. Good morning. You are on WBSM with our Gary Patterson. Hi, Tim. Hey, how are you? This is Joel from Wareham. Hey, Joel. How are you doing? Good, pretty good. You have a question for Gary? Yeah, I do, Gary. Gary, um... Do you think they would have been, I mean, they were just the greatest ever, but if they would have let George uh, participate a little bit more with what George did by himself, where would that really put them? You know, that's a good question. You know, I think they always, well, they looked at George like their little brother, okay? And if you ever had a little brother, how much responsibility did you let him take? Yeah. And he had to sort of earn it. But, you know, if you even listen to anything George has written, when he talked about the early days of the Beatles, he had a few songs. You know, If I Needed Someone was a, was a really good one, Don't Bother Me. Those were, right. You know, yeah. it was good. I mean, he mm -hmm. was really good. Of course, the one who was probably offended the most was Ringo. Right. Uh, it seems like, you know, Ringo could come in and he'll have a song called, uh, here, I got a title, Tomorrow Never Knows, write a song about it. Right. But with George, he really came into his own. And uh, when I think of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, when I think of Something, mm -hmm. you know, those are masterful George Harrison songs. Yeah. And when he stood up to the plate 
then his songs were, were greatly appreciated. I feel like in the beginning, they just threw him a couple of songs. Yeah, well, I think, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I really believe that if they were to let him, you know, be who he was later on, it, they just could have been phenomenal. I mean, they were anyway, yeah. Right. you know. But. Yeah. Well, thank I you for the call. I, and, okay. And I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. Have a good one, Joel. Take care. Okay. Bye, buddy. All right, Gary, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, I'm sure that you will uh, have plenty more interviews coming up. Uh, everybody can check out his website, rgarypatterson.com, for more information about those and about his books. Gary, thanks, and uh, we'll talk uh, again real soon. All right, Jim. All right, Thanks for care. having me. Bye-bye.